Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're featuring Portfolio Manager Connor Gordon's appearance at Fidelity Canada's Vision 2023 event, held recently in Toronto. With host Pat Bolland, Connor dives into the big opportunities available in global small caps and why investors should think about incorporating exposure to global small caps in their portfolio. In September 2022, Fidelity Canada launched a new fund, Fidelity Global Small Cap Opportunities Fund, managed by Connor and Chris Melodzinski. This fund may be new to the public, but it builds off the success of a similar strategy for institutional clients that Connor and Chris have been managing since 2019. The fund looks for mispriced investment opportunities where the market has underreacted to positive change or overreacted to negative change. Connor reflects on today's market environment and shares more details about the fund's strategy while also taking questions from the live audience. Today's podcast was recorded on January 31st, 2023. If you're interested in more podcasts from Vision 2023, please take a look at the other recently released episodes. Or for full video replays of the event, advisors should reach out to their Fidelity rep. And investors should head to fidelity.ca slash the upside and sign up for the upside newsletter. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Well, happy 2023. First time here on the stage. Good to see you here. Tell me about your background in your words. Yeah, so um, thanks for having me. Um, you know, for those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet, uh, my investing career started pretty early. Um, I grew up uh, in a small town west, west of Toronto, um, and my mom was a server at a cafe. And every uh, weekend, my dad would take my sister and I down to the cafe. He would, read, or, uh, he would get a cup of coffee. And I would flip through the sports pages in the newspaper. And one day I, I must have flipped too far because I found the business section. And I found the stock tables in the back of the newspaper. And I kind of said, you know, what is this? And I said, well, that's a stock market. I started filtering down, you know, reading the, t- the companies. And, you know, as a 12-year-old, when you start seeing, you know, Coca-Cola, Hershey, Wrigley, you have an epiphany. You're like, oh, my God, I can own the candy company. <laughs> and, you know, I was kind of hooked from there. And I went across the street and bought my first investment book as a 12-year-old. And that book was One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. So that was my first introduction to Fidelity. And, you know, fast forward a few years, um, you know, I joined the Canadian team in 2007, 2008 as an intern. And then, as uh, Glenn said, joined, uh, became a research analyst in 2009. And as every Fidelity analyst does, we joined the, uh, you know, Fidelity Analyst Rotation Program. So... You know, you spend, you know, call three years covering a sector and then you move on and you cover a new sector. So I spent, um, or, you know, did two rotations. So I covered tech and healthcare and then spent uh, a couple of years covering industrials. And I took a bit of a detour. Um, I, you know, became a generalist and that had, you know, two massive benefits. You know, number one, you get to look at a lot of companies, right? So there's, you know, six, seven years doing hundreds of company meetings a year. You get to build a pretty big Rolodex of, companies you might want to buy at the right price. The second big benefit that has was 
I got to work with a lot of the portfolio managers that you're going to you know hear speak this afternoon. Um, you know, uh, Hugo Lavalle, Dan Dupont, Mark Schmel, Steve McMillan, um, and I think that really taught me two things. That was, you know, what style works? How do you make money? And more importantly, what works for you? You know, so you take those two things, and you know, it kind of ended up being in a you know a circular fashion. Ended up being the you know perfect training ground to do global small cap. Okay, so talk to me about your fund. What is this fund overall? Global small cap fund, and you know the investment process that Chris and I have is you know we, we simplify it as quality plus change equals mispricing, and you know quality is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, to us, that means four things: profitability, predictability, growth, and safety. So profitability is pretty simple. You know, we like cat or we like companies that generate cash, and we avoid companies that burn cash. Um, you know, predictability. We like companies where we can look out, call three years, and be pretty confident with a reasonable range of outcomes that we know that what that company is going to earn. So you know, you combine the first two, and it's, it's you know, why is it's really can we put a value on that company? If we can't value the company, we're not going to buy it, and we're not going to put client money at risk. And then growth. You know, I tell our analysts, you know, if you are you know, if you're if you're not growing, you are dying. And you know, we really want our companies to be aligned with a structural trend, reinforce that predictability, and be confident when we look out that, that we have a growing business. And then safety. You know, when we are dealing in small caps, they you know can be more risky. So we are hyper attuned to industry structure, competitive dynamic within a business, and how that can affect the company. Um, we're really focused on cyclicality. Do, is the company have recurring revenue, or are they more dependent on chunky? cyclical contracts and then balance sheet obviously so you know leverage liquidity interest rate risk things like that so we're hyper attuned to some of these risks that um you know might it might impact the quality of business but it would infer that you're making somewhat of a macro call and yet the areas you avoid are the ones in secular decline technology and obsolescence there but also commodities why are you avoiding commodities i think it just kind of goes back to the predictability aspect of the business. Oh. So again, we want to go back and be able to look out a couple of years and be pretty confident in what that company's going to earn. You know, I think that that's kind of covers the quality aspect of the business, of the um, strategy. But what I think differentiates what we do is our emphasis on, you know, change and dislocation. The market in general is pretty efficient. I think most people can tell you what's a good business, what's a bad business. But the market has a bit of a flaw. And the flaw is that it extrapolates. So, you know, when things are good, the market assumes they'll stay good forever. When things are bad, the market thinks they'll stay bad forever. So what we try to do is identify situations where there is a change or a dislocation. We can identify a situation where our view of the future is materially different than the market thinks. And I think that's the mispricing. It's a little nebulous, but I have a couple examples that I think you know, can maybe help illustrate what we do. The first example is an example of positive change. This was a company that you know, I covered probably since I was an intern, since 2007. And it wasn't a great business, you know, for a long time, you know, they kind of hadn't grown, they struggled during their cost of capital. But, you know, we were doing an update call with the company in 2018. And, you know, we got through the meeting and it was kind of uninteresting. And then we kind of, you know, we asked, you know, is there anything you're excited about? And they said, well, yeah, you know, we have this new business. It's called DGD. I said, you know, what's DGD? It's, well, it's diamond green diesel. You know, we're taking, instead of, you know, putting the fat in, in animal feed, we're, you know, we partnered with Valero, the big U.S. refiner, and we're turning fats into renewable diesel. I said, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, what, what's the stage of the business? And said, well, we, we, we just finished, you know, we got 160 million gallons, we're making about a buck a gallon. But, you know, we just finished phase two, we're going to 275 million, and we just finished, you know, the phase three engineering that's going to take to like 675 million gallons. So you can start doing, you know, the math, 160, 275, 675. This company was doing $400 million in EBITDA. And it doesn't take, you know, very much, you know, complicated napkin math to figure out that they were going to triple their EBITDA mm -hmm. in a very short amount of time. You know, that was the structural change 
that we are looking for in some businesses. And, you know, that, that stock quickly became the biggest position in the fund. And, you know, the stock went from 20 to 80 in about two years. The second example would be on the dislocation side. Ideally, we're looking for companies that are undergoing some sort of temporary problem. So prior to COVID, we had a you know, small position in stock. You know, we liked the, the Canadian business, um, but they were struggling to unlock the U.S. market and the stock was a little expensive. So it wasn't a big position. And then obviously COVID happens, right? The stores are closed. That's a dislocation. And, you know, our analysis was pretty simple. Um, you know, this, the company had done, you know, call it a buck in earnings. They were projected to maybe do a you know a dollar ten a dollar twenty prior to COVID, and the stock was trading twelve dollars. A couple simple questions like: Is this a durable brand that is going to endure in the future? Yes. Do they have the liquidity to survive this moment in time? Yes. Can they adapt? If we are in you know in a lockdown scenario for longer than we think, can they adapt to the current market environment? Like obviously yes, they can sell online. So you know we made you know a calculated bet that this was going to be a retailer that you know thrived in the future, and you know the stock goes from twelve to, you know, 60, it's at 50-ish today. Um, but that would be an example. I think, you know, through COVID, it's actually turned into a bit of a growth stock because they have unlocked the U.S. market, they are on trend, and they are now the, you know, hottest, fastest-growing retailer in the United States. You know, it's interesting. I look at that uh, board quality and change. That sounds like Mark Schmill. The change part, at least, uh, sounds like Mark Schmill. But we typically basket small caps in value and growth baskets. Where would you fit there? Yeah, I think we are, you know, in the middle. We are neither growth nor value. We are a little eclectic. If you look at the holdings in our portfolio, they're a little off the run. They're probably things you haven't you know, necessarily seen before. I think we seek to have a diversity of ideas. So we have a few buckets and you, you, know, you can kind of see there, um, you know, the first bucket is growth at a reasonable price. So we're not hyper growth investors, but we are trying to find companies where there is you know, a secular tailwind where we think the, the growth is underappreciated, you know, ideally they can grow their earnings faster than the market. And we are paying a price, you know, ideally called 15 to 20 times earnings, where we think there is valuation upside versus downside. And we can compound investor capital with the underlying growth rate of the business. So that'd be the first bucket. You know, the second bucket would be what I, you know, we had just talked about. So positive change. It could be a, you know, company has a new, has a new product. Maybe they have a new management team. Maybe they are doing an acquisition or a divestiture or a spin-off, but something is changing such that the earnings power of the business is going to be structurally higher in the future. The third bucket would be that, that dislocation. So a company that is undergoing some sort of temporary but fixable problem, right? Not a permanent problem. We buy when the outlook is negative, and then we make money as the earnings recover and the stock re-rates as, as sentiment improves. Having three kind of buckets of ideas, we can really focus on the idiosyncratic mispricing, the idiosyncratic stocks. And we aren't dependent on making a big sector or style bet. So we don't need to dive into growth stocks. We don't need to dive into value stocks. We can really focus, stay down the middle and generate consistent returns. Well, more than consistent, because this is a retail product since the fall, but prior to that, it was an institutional product. Am I correct in saying right. that? Yeah, we launched the institutional strategy in November of 2019. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of going back to that consistency, and I think there's a couple of reasons I think we've been able to do this. And, you know, the first is obviously that diversity of ideas. Mm. So having multiple buckets where we can just focus on the stocks. The second one is diversity of idea sources. You know, I mentioned, um, you know, my partner Chris started at the firm in 2008. I started in 2009. Um, you know, we've had a lot of time to build up that Rolodex of companies. You know, we have a focus list of called 600 companies that we know pretty well. We like the business and we're just waiting for that price. We're waiting for that change or that dislocation to jump in and act. 
You know, the second one is our screening methods. So I think, you know, it's a little counterintuitive, but we don't really do financial screens. We don't screen for, you know, high return on equity or low valuation. We screen for change in dislocation. So we have developed over time, you know, some you know, internal um, text-based screens. So we're, we're screening for those, those ideas where there is a new product, where there is a management change, where a company is doing an acquisition or divestiture. And we can, that is what triggers the, the, um, the research to go and look at the research. Um, and then number three, obviously, is the advantage that we have of Fidelity, the research team. 140 analysts around the world, meeting companies, going to conferences, visiting trade shows, generating the ideas, then pushing them up to all the portfolio managers so that we have a big new set of ideas that we can look at every day, every week. Uh, okay, question from the app. Uh, and thank you for that question, whoever sent that in. As a global investor, geographically speaking, where are you finding more opportunities? In the U.S. or ex-U.S.? Yeah, so, you know, I think since inception, the fund has been positioned uh, in North America um, relative, you know, to the rest of the world. At the margin, I think we have been transitioning to find more ideas in Europe. And in particular, I think kind of going back to that, volatility creates dislocation and dislocation creates mispricing. So we are drawn to areas that are dislocated. And there has been, you know, no area that's been more dislocated recently than, than Europe. Um, you know, multiple crises. Um, and we don't get too hung up on predicting macro. We don't have, you know, a very, you know the, the asset allocation folks, will, you know, are presenting later. And I think they have a much more defined view on interest rates, inflation, et cetera. What we do do is we're hyper-focused on the how macro impacts the fundamental cash flows of the business. So, you know, during periods of uncertainty um, and, and dislocation, we fall back on what makes Fidelity great. And that's the research. Mm. Um, you know, 140 analysts around the world, regardless of what's going on, they are looking for the next best, you know, investment uh, opportunity. Uh, we talked about technology and the obsolescence component, but here's a question. Given the broad sell-off in technology, are you finding any opportunities to invest in this sector in the small cap space? Yeah, sure. You know, I think we look at everything on an idiosyncratic basis. Um, you know, within technology, this we have not been very active historically. And I think that you know that goes back to our emphasis on profitability. I think the reality is a lot of technology companies, a lot of software companies over the past three, four years, five years, they don't generate any money. So you know that's a problem for our investment process. So we haven't been particularly active. Um, I think we've owned maybe two, three software companies in the call three and a half years that um, you know we've been managing the fund. But you know I'm an ex tech tech analyst, um, and you know many large cap companies are profitable. And I think you know there was a process that many of these companies went through back in you know 1999, 2000, 2001, where there were a lot of companies that weren't profitable that that should inherently be profitable. Right, it's a software business. If you can't run a, a software business profitably, you got a you got a small problem. So we are trying to filter through the swamp to find the companies that are unprofitable today that can be slimmed down, can be restructured, that have like a core enduring value added product that might emerge from this crisis stronger, growing, and profitable. Looking for change. Small caps are considered to be more volatile than large caps, according to this question. Can you describe how you manage risk? You know, I think there's difference of definition. When we talk about small caps, the average small cap company in our fund, the average market cap of the company in our fund is $6 billion US. If you compare that to the average Canadian small cap index, that's like three, $400 million. So we are investing in companies that are, you know, 15, 20 times the size of a, what, you know, a Canadian small cap investor would consider a small cap. You know, in reality, that's $6 billion. That would actually get you into the bottom of the, the TSX 60. 
So when we talk about you know small caps in a global context, we're, we're really talking about you know in, in a Canadian context that might be a mid and large cap. So we are buying proven, profitable, predictable, growing businesses. These are not businesses that are you know a science project and a whiteboard. It's not a couple wildcatters with a you know a map and a hole in the ground. Big proven businesses that still have a lot of runway to grow. But Andrew made the point that uh, they're currently trading at 12 and a half times earnings. And at the bottom, I think he said April 2020, they were at nine and a half times earnings. This is the um, historical average that we're seeing for yep. small caps. Obviously, a buying opportunity or is it? I think the, you know, we're, you, the, the fund is positioned very well. So you know, short term, obviously, if you just take, uh, if you exclude companies that lose money, um, you know, the Russell 2000 small cap index in the US is trading at like called 12 times earnings. The S&P 500 large cap index is like 16, 17 times earnings. That spread is the biggest that we have seen since 99, 2000. In the short term, basic answer is stocks are cheap. And a lot of the pain and derating has already happened. You know, I think from a longer term perspective, you know, we have been in a bear market. And the one thing that bear markets do is they signal a change in leadership. And if we go back through the decades, um, you know, you can go to the back all the way to the cult the 1960s. So, you know, the 1960s was the decade of the nifty 50, not unlike today um, with, you know, growth stocks. 1970s, you had energy. 1980s, it was the rise of Japan and the U.S. consumer. 1990s, tech bubble 1.0. 2000s was China commodities, EM. 2010s, it was you know, effectively US large cap growth stocks in general and tech stocks in particular. So I think it would be historically inconsistent for the stocks that led the last bull market to lead the next bull market. And I think there's an incredible case to be made for diversification. Diversification away, for, away from maybe what had, has been or worked very well. And that's three things. Small caps versus large caps, global versus US, um, and sectors outside of tech. Mm. And that's exactly where we play with the, the fund that we manage. Parting words, where should small cap fit in somebody's portfolio? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm, my, me and my family are 100% invested in the fund. I am probably not most of your clients. Um, so, so this is probably not going to be a replacement for a core TSX or S&P 500 fund. But I think it's an asset class that's very underweight in many client portfolios. And given the alpha-rich nature of the asset class, it can be a very good complement to enhance the overall return profile of a client portfolio. So, you know, we are a global small cap fund, but we like to think of ourselves as a small cap fund that invests globally. If you are a, you know, a Canadian investor only investing in Canadian small caps, you're only seeing 5% of the opportunity set. If you are investing in U.S. small caps, you're only seeing 50% of the opportunity set. We want to see the whole opportunity set and then go out and find the most mispriced stocks, regardless of where they happen to be headquartered. Perfect. Connor, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.